Reading this morning is from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35, and if you want to follow it in the Pew Bibles, it's at page 1048. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For the last uh, ten years or more, uh, as we've been living down at Strangford Lock, we've been able to see from our house another building about half a mile or so away, uh, sitting between two drumlins. Uh, It's just a shell. Four walls, no roof bare breeze block, big empty spaces for windows and a door, giving it the appearance of a vacant human face. Obviously it had been begun in better economic times and then abandoned. It was a testimony to unfulfilled dreams. Standing like that for over a decade, its facade like a grotesque laughing skull mocking the bad planning or the misfortune of the builder. A little bit like a story Jesus told about a builder and a tower. (coughs) A decade or so earlier, I was involved in a youth centre in County Dublin that had a football pitch adjacent to it. One summer, a college team from the United States came on tour. They they were hosted at the centre and they played some local semi-professional teams. One afternoon, the opposition didn't show up. Now, also adjacent to the centre on the other side was a long hedge, separating it from a local council estate. At nights, this was populated by a group of drinking lads that we called, affectionately, the Hedge Boys. They'd sit there smoking their stuff, playing their music late into the night. And for years, we had tried to engage without much success with the Hedge Boys. When this particular match had been abandoned, our director had an idea and went over to the den and asked a few of them if they could form a team. We thought, this is going to be fun. But they were up for it. The next 30 minutes were quite hilarious. Moody College drive the 200 yards to the pitch in a branded minibus. They get out in full gear with names and numbers on their back and they form a huddle. The hedge boys show up in twos and threes, one in a trench coat, 
one wearing a pair of DM boots, another swinging out of a, swinging out of a, a bottle of cider that he left on the touchline for future use during the game. A couple were still smoking. Two were arguing among themselves over who should play goalie because nobody wanted to. And eventually the self-designated captain started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Where's Anto? Oh, he's probably still in bed, Mikko. Oh, Jerry, go get Anto and tell him we're ready to start. And so you had one team of college students, full kit, rehearsing tactics, doing their stretches, limbering up, and a bunch of scruffy, drinking, smoking, barely awake teenagers without a recognised goalie and with one still in his pyjamas. It was quite hilarious. It was a little bit like a story Jesus told about a king and an army. And there is a big shift in chapter 14. We've just had the parable of the great banquet. And the message of that parable is that the party, the kingdom of God, is for everybody, regardless of social status or resources. It finishes with the master saying to his servants, go into the roads and the country lanes, literally go into the hedges and bring the boys in. And now, as there's this large crowd following, he turns and he doesn't so much change gear as seem to shove it into reverse. And he looks at them and he says, yeah, the party's for everybody, it's free. But it's not cheap. There is a massive, massive cost to following me. And then he goes in on to give two stipulations and two examples. The two examples are a bit like my earlier stories. The the unfinished building lying there as a testimony to somebody who didn't count the cost before they started. And the unprepared, under-resourced army who face certain defeat if they go onto the field. But it's the two stipulations that probably raise the eyebrows. If you look at what he says from verse 25, he's literally saying two things. He's saying to his would-be followers, hate your family and prepare to die. Take up your cross. Hate your family and prepare to die. Now, I've written a right few job advertisements and job specifications in my current role, but I've never written one like this. Christian Unions Ireland need a staff worker. Essential criteria, hate your family and prepare to die. Jesus, the one who stood by the law of the Old Testament says that says, honour your father and your mother now says, hate your family. Jesus, who in Matthew's gospel blasts the religious leaders for giving money to the church at the expense of neglecting their parents, now says, hate your family. Jesus, the preacher who tells us to love your enemies, now says, hate your family. What's that about? Well, maybe you've heard it explained like this. This is an overstatement. Linguists call it a Semitic hyperbole, a particularly Middle Eastern turn of phrase, an exaggeration. And it used to be explained to me like this. Your love for Jesus should be so strong that it makes all other loves 
look like hate. Or you should love your family less than you love Jesus. I've never been quite satisfied with that. Nothing wrong with it until you unpack it a little. But it was unsatisfactory to me for a couple of reasons. Because in the Aramaic and the Hebrew that Jesus would have been relying on, the word hate is an active word. It involves a conscious choice. It's not just a comparative thing. I love Rice Krispie Squares more than I love 15s. I love cats more than I love dogs. I love Paris more than I love London. Jesus isn't saying that. He seems to be asking us to make a specific decision about our response to other things that are dear to us. It's active. Also, those explanations about, you know, love Jesus more than you love your family or, you know, make it seem like hate or whatever, doesn't give us any advice or data on how we do that, how we make our love for Jesus so strong that it makes other love look like hate. I mean, what does that look like? Can we not just love both? That would seem sensible, wouldn't it? Well, let me say a couple of things. Firstly, there is here definitely a clear exaggeration used to drive home a point. That's what hyperbole does, you know. Who was there at the game? Oh, everybody was there. Millions were watching. The whole world was there. You make a point by exaggerating. Proverbs says, we see this elsewhere in the Bible, when you see the word hate. Proverbs, for example, says, (coughs) excuse me, Proverbs says, those who refuse to discipline hate their children. The writer is standing back and saying, the consequences of not disciplining, in terms of developing your child's character and moral framework, the consequences of not doing that are so great that if you don't do it, you you must hate your children. You must care so little for them that you actually hate them. It makes a point, doesn't it? In another Old Testament example, we see the second point, which is about how others view our choices and priorities. If our love for Jesus is so strong, how will that be interpreted by some other people? In 2 Samuel 26, David's army has been fighting his rebel son Absalom, and Absalom has been killed. They've won the battle. But David is grieving. He's weeping his heart out like any father would who had lost a son. And Joab, his army commander, is furious with him that he's crying over the death of his enemy who wanted to kill him rather than celebrating. And he says to David, you've humiliated us. It's clear now that you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. David's love for his son was so great that his closest friends, because of their different values and perspectives, felt that David was actually hating them. I think the crux of what Jesus is saying here isn't so much about the comparative strength of our love, you know, whether what our love for him is like in terms of our love for others. Of course he commands us to love all people. But his emphasis is more on how our all-consuming love for him and our choices to put him first, how that will be interpreted and perceived by some of those closest to us. Maybe you've seen this a little. 
I've seen it with some folks, very painfully in some of their relationships. I think of a couple going abroad on missions, choosing to follow Christ's call and travel thousands of miles away with their children and their unbelieving parents reacting and saying, you must hate us so much to do this to us. I think of a leader of a Christian ministry who tells of how when he was converted in his 20s, he was at that time in a relationship with another man. He realized without anyone telling him earlier on that this, that this would be incompatible with his newfound discipleship. And he says probably the hardest thing he has ever done was to break it off. At which point his partner said, why do you suddenly hate me so much? Of course he didn't. He was full of compassion and pain and he would say genuine love for the guy. But he was making a choice. And it was interpreted as hate. Or the child you want to grow up in the faith. You strive to keep your baptismal vows. But they're at a stage when they don't want to be around church or God. And as you insist on bringing them, one day they shout, you must hate me to do this. Nothing could be further from the truth. But your love for them is interpreted as the very opposite. I think of a friend who on his wedding day said to his wife in a letter... I love you more than any other person on the planet. But the moment I love you more than I love Jesus, I will have failed you. The moment I love you more than I love Jesus, I will have failed you. How come? Folks, if we love Jesus first, then we truly do love others. But if we start to love anyone else more, then we fail both Jesus and the person. Because by making them an idol, which is what we're doing, we give to them the status of God in our lives. And that, folks, is too big a burden for anyone to bear. I would be horrified if Gwen considered or expected me to be God in her life. Now, the chances are slim. In fact, the chances are slimmer than slim. But if I was to make her the most important relationship in my life over God, to make her my God, how is that fair on her? If you make your children your God, how many kids' lives have been ruined because parents have done precisely that? Or a boyfriend? Or a girlfriend? We were standing a couple of weeks ago in a bus stop in Dubrovnik, as you do. And Gwen can sniff out an Irish accent quicker than I can sniff out a piece of rhubarb pie. And we got talking to this girl at the bus stop from home. Turned out she was a Christian, and she had just left her travelling companion off at the airport. And we got talking, and this girl had been quite burdened for her friend who had just confided to her out of the blue that she was now having intellectual doubts about the Christian faith. Doubts that had never seemed to bother her before. And she said, maybe Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. And Gwen said to our new companion, would she recently have got herself a non-Christian boyfriend by any chance? And the girl looks stunned and says, well actually yeah, a couple of months ago. 
And an example of when you give your heart to somebody else, especially somebody who doesn't share your values and will not understand them, suddenly you get from there to a point where you say, Jesus isn't all he's cracked up to be. An idolatry of a person or a relationship will inevitably reduce your love for Jesus. While an act of choice to love and follow Christ above all will mean that others may misinterpret that as hate or as rejection of them. When, of course, the reality is that loving Christ above all frees us to love others as we were meant to love them. Without the all-embracing love of Christ, how can we love our spouses or our children or our neighbors or our enemies as we should? Jesus here is simply encouraging his would-be followers to get their priorities right. Of course he's not encouraging parental neglect, child neglect, divorce, family division. Of course there are times and seasons of life when the most Jesus-like thing you can do is prioritize care for those that we have been entrusted with, young children, ill parents. It's important to do that because we are following Christ. All of us, many of us, anyway, have been at that stage. But it's relatively easy to discern when those seasons are. You have young children. You've got very sick parents, maybe going into a fold. But the big test comes when we shut out the call of God on our lives or the discipleship implications to follow him and obey him and we use the response of our family or friends or partners as an excuse for not listening to God. Just to further illustrate that Jesus is not being disproportionately hard on families here, you will notice that in verse 26 he adds the little phrase, Yes, hates even his own life. Our single-minded following of Christ will not only be misinterpreted as hatred by those close to us, it could be seen as self-hatred. Has he got no ambition? Has she got no sense? Have they got no concern for their reputation? Giving up a potential career, perhaps, with all its earning power? Spending all that time volunteering? Holding unpopular views? Risking ostracism? Being ridiculed? Why are they doing that? Well, unless a person hates even his own life, he cannot be my disciple, says Jesus. Again, This is not some neurotic indulgence in low self-esteem because that's equally unhealthy as being obsessed with yourself. As Tim Keller memorably says, being a disciple of Jesus is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. And to some that would appear as self-hatred. And that brings us to the other requirement. It's a short step from being seen as hating oneself to taking up your cross. If somebody was carrying a cross in the ancient Near East, in Roman-occupied Palestine, there was a fair chance they were going to end up on it. It was part of the preparation for death. 
And Jesus here as he walks towards Jerusalem and the inevitability of Calvary is saying to his followers, come with me then and prepare to die. That's why the early Christians were able to face death so calmly. One of the other places we visited on holiday was the Colosseum. Very, very sobering to look at those underground holding pens and think how many of our ancient brothers and sisters spent their last hours there. It was part of the package. That's why when a colleague in Afghanistan was meeting with some nationals who were inquiring about Christianity, and he was asking them if they knew what this might mean, they were able to say, we know, we recognize this could mean death, but we want to know more about a message so powerful that it might be worth getting killed for. Is that the message that you have accepted that brings you here this morning in the relative comfort of East Belfast? A message so powerful that those who risk death for it want to find out more because they want to think, what is so special that this is worth getting killed for? That's why when another Christian was told that it may be dangerous to go to a certain area as a preacher, he said, it's okay. I died the moment I gave my life to Christ. I gave up any rights I had to my own life. That's what Christ is saying here. For us this morning, it may not mean as obvious or as radical a sacrifice, but it must mean something. Let me just highlight two simple examples. One is our stuff. As you know, Gwen's a declutterer. One thing she still often is surprised about when she's with a Christian client or more often when she's speaking at Christian groups and hearing the response about the issues around clutter is still how tightly many of us hang on to things that are ultimately inconsequential. Folks, crosses are pretty heavy things. They're bulky. We're going to need two hands. We can't carry it if our hands are full of other things. And one other example of what it might mean to take up our cross. Our hurts and our pains. I say this because I think that if there's something I find most of us want to hang on to or find hard to let go of, it is our resentment. Hurts or pains that have been caused to us by others. And that's maybe why the Greek word for forgiveness is aphiemi, which literally means letting go. Taking up our cross may mean acknowledging that we're going to get hurt or that we have been hurt, but we forgive, we let go. And being a faithful follower of Jesus is going to increase the chances of that. Remember many years ago when the peace negotiations in Northern Ireland here were at a delicate stage, I went to a hustings with some politicians and church leaders and towards the end someone stood up and made a very impassioned speech. They were a Christian. But they felt that their community had suffered and they kept asking, how can I forget about this? How can you expect me to let go? How can you expect me to move on, to forgive? And they listed some of the atrocities that had happened. And I was thinking, I wonder how this is going to be answered. And I'll never forget one church leader listened. And after a short silence, he said very gently, very calmly, 
I know. I know. It's not easy. But it's the way of the cross. It's the way of the cross. It's not easy. Which is why Jesus then gives us those illustrations that I won't say much about because the point is clear. You don't start on a venture without counting the cost. Otherwise you're left with a folly, an empty shell of a building and a defeated, demoralized army. And so we have a problem. Christ demands absolute loyalty to the extent that others will interpret it as hatred. He demands that we essentially die, take up our cross, let go of our stuff and our hurt and our pain. Who can do that? I can't. He tells us to count the cost, and we've started to do that, and it's pretty high. It's way more than is in our spiritual or emotional bank account. It's way beyond whatever resources we feel we have. Of course, some have thought they could do it. They realize that they can't. They've given up. They've gone back to the old idols. Which is why one of the excuses I sometimes hear from students as to why they don't commit to Christ was, well, I tried that before and it didn't work. Their tower was never completed. Their army was defeated. The reality is, folks, if we count up the cost in terms of our resources, our natural abilities, our staying power, our resilience, our intellectual gifts, our compassion, our desire to do good and love God, if we count all of that up, We'll be lucky if we get the tower two feet off the ground. None of us can do it. The gospel. The gospel is that as we count the cost and weigh that up against what we have, we need then to realize that we have to claim daily the all-sufficient resources promised to us by Christ. We need to drink deeply of his spirit to rest on His grace, to depend on Him alone. It is the fruit of the Spirit that will produce this love, joy, peace in us. Why is that important? Well, it's important because only He can do it for us. Because He's been there, hasn't He? He says, unless you hate your mother and father, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple. One day they said to him, Hey Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Hmm. Dismissive? Some might have thought so. He must really hate his family to say that about them. Not acknowledge them. And yet, of course, we watch him on the cross having time to speak to his mother and organize for her care. And we know that that couldn't be further from the truth. He put all relationships, even family relationships in perspective, beside the most important relationship of all with his father. He says to us, whoever does not carry their cross is not worthy to be my disciples. Well, he did that, didn't he? He carried it. He hung on it so that we might be able to love like we have never loved before. Love so much and in a way that is so different to what the world around us thinks of as love that they won't understand it. He will give us the power and ability to love in a way that it will not be understood. 
How do you get there? Because the worst thing that could happen this morning is that I leave you feeling so far from this picture of discipleship and so far from meeting the demands and the cost that we don't even go any further. There was an old Scottish theologian called Thomas Chalmers who was a leading light in the Church of Scotland in the 1800s. He wrote a famous essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. They were into snappy titles in those days. The expulsive power of a new affection. But the message of the essay was very straightforward and simple. It was this. There is no point in trying to get somebody to stop loving or to give up something to which they are very attached, but which you may think is unhelpful, whether it's an addictive behavioral pattern or an unhealthy or destructive relationship. No point in trying to get them to give that up unless first you're going to give them something more beautiful and more attractive and more compelling in its place. Once they grasp this new affection, the old stuff will disappear naturally. I don't know about you, but I remember seeing this as a teenager. A friend who would regularly be into whatever her boyfriend was into. When the football-loving guy was replaced by the petrol head, she stopped being into football and was suddenly into cars. A new affection had expelled the old one. And Tamer's point is that it is utterly counterproductive and futile to preach law at people, telling them to give up their idle sins, as they say in Dublin. If first you have not introduced them to grace and shown them the beauty of Christ. That's where we start. By demonstrating the beauty of the gospel of Christ. Because if we don't, If we don't do that, if what we have are just people doing religious things to try to make it over the finishing line, all duty, no love, no affection, no grace, what we have, in the words of Jesus' last illustration, is salt that has lost its saltiness. It's lost its very reason for existence. It's useless for the dinner plate or the farmyard. And yet, sadly, I wonder if that is what much of contemporary Christianity actually is. A big bunker of flavorless, ineffective, essentially useless salt. Folks, Jesus isn't just somebody worth following. This is someone worth risking everything else for. This is someone worth dying for. What will it take for us to fall in love with him or to fall back in love with him. Just a couple of weeks ago, Tim Farron, in his resignation speech as leader of the Liberal Democrats, and after a pretty relentless and inexcusable personal campaign by sections of the media against him for his Christian beliefs, said this on national television as he closed his speech. He said, I joined our party when I was 16. It's in my blood. I love our history, our people. I thoroughly love my party. Imagine how proud I am to lead this party. And then imagine what would lead me to voluntarily relinquish that honor. In the words of Isaac Watts, he said, and we sang it this morning, it would have to be something so amazing, so divine, that it demands my heart, my life, my all. 
that's salt that still has its flavor. That's someone who has chosen in some people's eyes to hate his party, his friends, his career, his very life because of the expulsive power of a new affection. There was one final twist to the story I told at the start about the hedge boys. The final score. The final score was a fully kitted, tactically trained, full squad, moody college, two goals, the ramshackle DM wearing ten and a half players, hedge boys, five goals. Because you see, while the visible resources were all on one side, there was a final factor that we needed to bear in mind. A basic, raw, innate footballing ability. And in those days, anyway, a bunch of Dublin teams still had it over a bunch of American frat boys. And when we're counting up the cost, it's going to be so tempting to say we can't do it. When the question is, do you want to? Has love for Christ so captured your heart? And has what he has done for you so gripped you? that you want to follow him more faithfully, then don't look at the visible resources. Think of the unseen, the spiritual resources that are available to us in Christ through his Spirit. Realize he's worth it. Take up the cross and follow. Let's pray. Lord, you said many hard things and yet you did so in a way that was so enthralling and attractive that people still followed even unto death. Be with us this morning. Be with those who are faltering in their discipleship, who are questioning whether you're worth it and give them a new vision of who you are and what you've done be with those of us who are facing particular challenges in our discipleship and give us the courage and the grace, the spiritual resources to see them through. May we always realize that this does not depend on our strength, but rather on the orientation of our heart, our single-mindedness, that you have captured our heart above everything else, and that, yes, you are all you're cracked up to be, and more and more, and more. Help us to follow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.